Welcome to the Prickly Couch podcast where three mujeres have real conversations. We'll share our stories and talk about wellness, familias, work, and everything in between in our experiences as Latina women. All right, y'all, welcome to our next episode of the Prickly Couch. This is your host, Gabriela Hurtado. Got anyone? Josie Serata. Welcome, and today we have a very special guest. He's Notario, um, and Josie, you go ahead and introduce them. <laughs> Hi, everyone. We're laughing because we're like speaking, trying yeah. to speak over each other. <laughs> um, uh, we have with us Heidi Notario, one of my favorite people in the world. We're so excited to have um, Heidi with us today. Thank you for joining us, Heidi. Um, Heidi is okay. Bear with me the Vice President of Strategic Partnerships and Systems Change at the National Resource Center on Domestic Violence. Um, and one of my really great friends um, in this work of domestic violence, we met, shoot, 10 years ago now, um, in our work where we used to work together at a national organization in domestic violence. Um, and yeah, she's just one of my favorite people. And we're so happy to have you, Heidi. Thank you for joining us. Um, do you want to start with just sharing a little bit about who just who you are, the on the Vienes, where are your people from, all that good stuff? Oh, thank you, Josie and and Gabby. Uh, uh, that's so very cool organization that you both have created to provide healing to Latinx communities. Um, I'm very happy to be here today. Um, yes, uh, the feeling is mutual, Josie. You're also one of my favorite people in the world. And um, well, I'm, I was born in Cuba. I've been in the States for now 25 years. So um, I, of course, came here when I was two months old. <laughs> And, uh, and, uh, and the work uh, to end uh, gender-based violence in, um, began for me over a decade ago. I was doing disability rights advocacy. That, that was the door through which I entered uh, the anti-violence movement. Um, and then um, that work took me into ending violence against particularly at the time, women with disabilities. And I discovered uh, the challenges around due process and, and support for, for victims of crime with disabilities. And that put me on the path to ending gender-based violence. And then, yes, I've done culturally specific work with Josie uh, when we worked for a Latina organization and now I'm with the National Resource Center on Domestic Violence, where I also was um, for four years between 2004 and 2008. So now I'm back in this new role. And basically with that big long title, I oversee the work of our policy and research team, um, which includes um, work that is, happens in the context of housing insecurity also and survivors of violence as part of the Domestic Violence and Housing Technical Assistance Consortium. So that's in a very nutshell, some of my, my work and my path. All the, all the things, all the things. Yes, all the things. Um, so Heidi, um, the reason, of course, we wanted um, you to join us today because it's Domestic Violence Awareness Month, um, given 
you know, our backgrounds in this work um, and just how important this topic is to our communities. Um, we wanted to have this kind of special, it's kind of, we're going to call it our special episode, right? It's kind of off, off schedule. It's an extra bonus um, so that we can um, focus on this issue and share awareness, right? And so I'm wondering if you can talk some about, um, of course, we know rates and statistics, right, are skewed, but I wonder if you can talk some about what we know in terms of the rates of violence among our community members. So I think the, you know, we say our community, um, I wanted to say that to start, you know, uh, violence against women and girls, um, domestic violence, sexual assault, and other forms of violence are not, um, one community specific issue. Uh, these are, this is a global, also a global pandemic, and it has been for, for a long time. The public health issue, it, um, so it really impacts, unfortunately, most women. Um, and I'm using a, a women as a general term. I'm also uh, quite aware of the experiences of trans women in particular, and their, how overrepresented they are um, in, uh, in terms of violence and transphobia and how that shows up with um, sexual assault and other forms of yeah. violence against everything feminine, if you will. So very common, we talk about one in three, one in five, it depends on the, um, on the context, but as Josie, you indicated, some of these statistics or the majority of them do not provide the whole picture. These usually go based on reported cases. We know the majority of the cases or a very large number of them never get reported. And there are many obstacles around reporting these kinds of violence. So that's what I would say. Mm -hmm. I, I think I was listening to another podcast around this topic in the African-American community and the Black diaspora community. Um, and a good example, I think for us, when we do infographics, one of the ones that is like a good visual is the, um, uh, with the um, people, right? So you see the people. So if you think about 10 people, right? Um, so think of right now, your um, friends and familia, right? 10 people that we know four of those people have been impacted by domestic violence um, in some way. Um, and this, those stats are looking at like direct impact of um, either um, physical assault, sexual assault, um, um, stalking, right? Like the different emotional um, violence. So it's, domestic violence takes many forms, right? And so that's looking at, uh, those numbers are at, a, at a, after the eight years of 18. We know domestic violence, there's exposure to domestic violence at early age and childhood, right? It's a life cycle. We're starting, more people are starting to talk about like the life cycle of domestic violence. Um, and so I always say like the numbers are probably even higher. And if we think about our own personal networks, right, of how, how many folks we know um, who've been impacted um, by this issue, and I like that you use the word pandemic because it is, right? We just haven't, um, it doesn't, hasn't brought, been brought up into the uh, awareness um, uh, of understanding on a society level of like the scale of what, of how this issue impacts so many people. Mm -hmm. And it makes right. me think, Josie, when you're saying that, that a lot of it is 
<clears throat> part because it's so normalized, especially in our comunidad, right? It's like um, when I'm talking to family, friends, clients, right? And we're trying to label things. We have a hard time labeling it because it's so common. It's something that is so ingrained. Um, and that is, um, I think, also what uh, makes it hard to in um, in the healing process, but also in anything that happens before then. Right. It's it's deep, right? So I think it it goes back to traditional gender roles. It goes back to uh, notions of masculinity. It it it, um, it connects to and it starts like you said, Josie. You pointed out the exposure to violence on the part of children, we didn't touch on dating violence, like teen dating violence, so that your point about a lifelong cycle of violence, it becomes, like you said, Gabby, normalized. And so there are problems along the exposure or cycle, right? All of the moments where intervention should have occurred and it doesn't because it gets incorporated is some people still believe even though in the United States there are laws uh, specifically written um, about this and and with consequences but we still have a lot of problems around the implementation of the laws because the changes in the um, at the level of understanding that violence is not acceptable that violence is not cultural that is not okay, that has nothing to do with masculinity, that has to do with power and control. Mm -hmm. I think until that work is done and it has to happen at the level of prevention from early ages, but that's not what we emphasize, right? I think a lot of the, the work and the efforts have been around intervention, mm -hmm. around police involvement, but not enough around prevention. So we keep doing the same things and expecting different results. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're in trouble uh, with that. And I think a lot of us um, are are trying to like constantly make the connection and remind folks of like this historical links between um, racism, colonization, and our countries of origin and our diverse Latinx countries in this country, right? Like how that those systems um, have. Uh, come to play when we're talking about an individual partnership relationship right and and I think that is important because we're speaking to like we were talking uh, one of our previous episodes about like body image right and how all these cultural norms are thrown at us right and then after we finished we're like oh we forgot to like we didn't talk much about like where that comes from right and it is a it, it comes from racism and colonization and this like hierarchy that has been instilled on us right including you know color but gender right and how gender shows up in the particular ways that gender should look and all those things right and so when we talk about there's always this tension of like especially when we're talking culturally specific right like there's a tension between everyone experiences violence right it's not something that um, is only a latinx issue right but sometimes what can happen is like they'll use our cultural norms against us. It'll be like, oh, well, your community is, it's because y'all's community is so machista. And so you guys, you know, and you guys are, you women are so um, submissive. So you just 
let this happen, right? And we've heard in the way, and for me, I like to use the example of why it's so dangerous to equate um, the violence to cultural community specifically and victim blame. Um, we've heard, we know of stories where children have been taken away from Latino families because judges have these stereotypes. And they'll say, you know what? You, that Latina mom is so submissive and that's part of her culture. So we need to take these kids away from her and put them in a white family. <laughs> right, essentially, because the culture is so ruined, right, and so I think that's such an important piece um, for us to, in the nuance of this, um, for us to unpack and discuss and center that, yes, we have violence in our, in our familias, in our community, other communities do too, and it's not because we are a particular culture and hold these norms, all cultures have different forms of these types of norms. It goes back to colonization and racism where hierarchies were instilled on our communities, right? And then we internalize those and act them out in these ways. Very much so and very true. I can't um, agree more with that, that it's dangerous to actually use uh, what are perceived as cultural norms like usually when I hear, oh, Latina men are machistas. And I'm like, well, male, you're talking about male chauvinism and it exists in all cultures. We have a word for it. So I think we all should come up with our own word in whatever yeah. language that may be, but it's not unique uh, of Latinos, right? In particular. And then yes, the dangers of stereotyping, overgeneralizing, and then making decisions. That's how the impact of practice and policies at times on entire cultural groups and families. It's a lot of work and it has to happen. Um, I think the changes have to happen at the individual level. You know, the changes around these perceptions of what's acceptable and the victim blaming. I think that is one of the hardest things to break. Very true in all cultures. Mm -hmm. And the victim blaming in our systems, right? We exactly. know that and we we talk a lot about this among practitioners and and in our practice we do a lot of um trying to support right and build more knowledge around practitioners of just the subtle ways victim blaming comes out right like it's just like when you're questioning someone of color who experiences racism it's like questioning like oh really did that happen right or so practitioners can have vic use victim blaming language we know our criminal justice system dios mio we have so many horrific instances of um, police being called, of, um, you know, uh, order of protections not being honored, of um, victims being questioned. And then we're, we start, we're seeing also um, increased rates of um, survivors being arrested themselves, right? So a, 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 a police officer shows up, is like, there's a mess here. We don't know. We'll just take you both in, right? And like, then you have a, a survivor now in the criminal justice system and, and, and all the repercussions that has, especially if they have children, yes. right? And so it's so complex. And at the same time, it's nuanced, right? And so it is important for us to understand in our own communities, the intersecting identities, right? That, that are in our communities and how domestic violence might show up. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, um, we were thinking of like different communities. I know that you've worked with, but the queer Latinx communities, for, for example, um, we might have 
or we probably have, right? Queer family members and friends and to understand like how to support them and how it might show up in their relationship that might look different in a hetero relationship would be important for us to, to know about too. I wonder if yeah. you can share, talk a little bit more about that, Heidi. So I didn't mention that that's also work that I've done and I'm also a member of that community. So for me, it's a personal and also a professional commitment to ending violence within queer communities. I think the challenge there, the dynamics of abuse, you still have a partner that's trying to exercise power and control over another partner, right? So when we look at what are the dynamics of violence, it's very similar. What's different there, uh, or one of the differences, of course, is the issue of if you have a survivor that has to deal with also homophobia or transphobia on top of the violence that they're experiencing at the hands of their intimate partner, I think the situation is much more complex and compounded by their own different layers of identities. So you may have somebody that the fear of reporting or even seeking uh, support from family members or friends is complicated because they may not be out to their family members or friends. Because maybe if they're out, they may be out, but um, it's now difficult, you know, for most people, it's difficult to um, navigate the, the space, even if there is acceptance within the family, to also be recognized as being in a legitimate partnership relationship by society at large. We live in a society that is highly homophobic, transphobic, et cetera, right? So even if you have support from your family members, it's hard to say, well, I'm queer. And by the way, I'm also in a relationship with someone who is abusing me. So it really is quite uh, complicated um, for survivors. In well, and I'm thinking también like the tools that, you know, then you have the another layer of like um, tools that can be used against a partner, right? It's like, Absolutely. you know, I'm going to out you, right? You know, I'm going to out you to your work. I'm going to out you to your familia, right? I'm going to, um, and using that as a tactic of control um, or even I know um, HIV status, right? Like exactly. if you have a particular status and that using that as a way to threaten and control, right? Um, maybe controlling um, treatment medication, right? Like there's so many, um, I think unique, um, strategies that can be used that for us, you know, thinking of our diverse Latinx communities, like to be aware of, so when our familia or our neighbor, or, you know, comes to us and they're sharing these things that we're, um, like, oh, wait, I've heard this before. I'm familiar, right? This is, this doesn't sound healthy right this isn't sound quite right um instead of again um shutting it down and blaming right exactly so you talked about tactics of abuse yes all of those and many more i think if there are children involved also they are used um uh, the if the person is an out again that can be used to say oh, you're going to lose custody i'm going to out you but then there is also the barriers around the service providers too if i come to an organization whose language is entirely heteronormative, or if, if this is a person who is transitioning and the language is such that they have to, they're assumed to be a gender they're not or don't identify with, I think all of those are additional barriers for those seeking help. So, um, and then laws too, and depending on the state where people live, there may also be situations where really calling for help is um, more harmful than beneficial for survivors in these kinds of relationships. So Heidi, 
I, we, we've been talking a lot about barriers and how um, often the domestic case violences go through the laws and we have laws written for them. But I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about um, challenges that folks who are immigrants would face and how that, that would apply to them if these laws even apply to them and how they could be protected. That's a great question, Karen. Um, there are uh, remedies available for immigrant survivors that may be undocumented, because I think what you're asking here is are these protections, do these protections equally protect um, uh, uh, immigrant survivors that may be undocumented, that may have a, an unstable immigration status, right? I think there are, there are some um, existing remedies available for survivors that may be undocumented um, uh, under the Violence Against Women Act um, that could support their case and adjust their status. Now there is a cap on those cases. The processes move very slowly. I think the administration or the government really has something to do with that because when survivors live in fear, especially when you have to deal with a climate that is deeply anti-immigrant, I think it's very, um, it's not a surprise that survivors are not gonna naturally call and, and support. Some of these remedies also require cooperation with law enforcement. And again, if you're afraid that you may be deported, especially when law enforcement uh, works very closely with ICE, I think um, definitely survivors may stay, um, may, may avoid uh, pressing charges or moving forward. There is also the, because we've put so much emphasis on the criminal legal system response, there is also the implication for the abusive, the impact, you know, for the abusive partner. And the reality that not all survivors want to leave the violent relationship. I think to the surprise of many, many survivors just want the violence to stop. And, they, and that explains to why it takes an average of seven times for survivors to actually walk away from a violent relationship is because they may love their partner. They just want the violence to end and they want help for their partner. Our systems have not been set up that way to deliver that kind of support. So in the case of undocumented families, um, deporting the abusive partner may not actually be the solution for, for a family, especially if that partner is the main provider for the family. So uh, uh, deporting that family member could really put the survivor at risk for homelessness, for other problems. And if there are children involved, then we have other systems involvement like child protection. And I think Josie mentioned some of that entanglements that could happen that sometimes result in the removal of children. So there is a lot at stake, right? While there are remedies, and I would say for immigrant survivors that may be undocumented to really look for information, reach out to their local domestic violence programs because there are remedies available. Uh, but there are all of these other contextual pieces around what is the present immigration climate um, and where are they going for help? We documented, and um, shoot, when I was in Georgia, 2008, 
um, we did a participatory action research project with youth there at the time because it was at the um, it was when Georgia and Arizona were at the forefront of passing the anti-immigrant legislation locally, right in this at the state level, and we were working. Uh, I was working at a domestic violence organization there, Camina Latino, um, and um, we documented what this the impact this anti-immigrant climate was having um, on um, on children right um and so they were saying and they you know shared that like for latino um children um because of the fear around systems and our our experiences with systems right especially if you're um mixed status family um they uh, won't call the police until they feel like um they're one of their parents is at risk of um death right so it was they were sharing that they won't share they won't call they won't reach out unless it's a very severe violent situation, maybe strangulations involved or a weapon gets introduced, right? And so they're already, our kids are already making decisions about like doing their own danger assessments about at what level is this going down and is it to the point, okay, you know, maybe I'll call, right? Um, and then what we, saw, we, we found with this study is that uh, the, with the anti-immigrant climate, climate, they weren't calling even then anymore right mm -hmm. they just they were making decisions to handle in-house so you have um you have teenage you have young kids right um and this was specific to um latin latino children um that were deciding not even to reach out if it was that severe because of this fear right that was in 08 that was before this national unfolding of an anti immigrant rhetoric and the and the culture that we're in now and so we followed it up with another study with the hotline the domestic violence hotline same thing we were starting to die we started to document the national level this real fear and what we notice is that there's fear not only in immigrant um individuals but fear in just all latinos right because how many of us are in mixed status families and we uh, are fearful for our, you know, our tias, our tios, our, our vecinos, our familia, our, our community, right? Um, and so the, I think the, to speak to Heidi's point around like the solution being systems isn't necessarily a solution for immigrant communities. And so what, you know, how can we shift and support um, when there are so many barriers to, um, folks reaching out or even just receiving service because then they get entangled in a system and actually might cause so much more harm generally generationally if we're talking about taking children away from you know from their families and I think now we have like an interesting intersection right with the pandemic and um and in, in election time and what that means for our communities right I know I've been seeing a lot of content about the increased presence of ICE in our communities. Um, and I know that in October 16, some of those rules will be back in place where people can be asked, you know, very similar to those um, proposals in Arizona and in Georgia, where you can be stopped and be asked to provide documentation about your status. Um, and so people are nervous. Of course, they're very afraid. So what can we do to support them? So um, 
Is that a question for me, Gabby? Or I think it's just for the group, but I think you, you can, you can yeah. answer, Heidi. So I think that, I think we have to believe in the wisdom of our communities. Um, communities have internal resources already um, that they access all the time. And I remember being very um, touched on so many levels. I, got, I felt like it changed my, my view of, uh, of the work just seeing what some of the Latinx communities were doing on the borders in Texas, actually. This was many years ago that I had the opportunity to go to McAllen and uh, visit an organization there. And um, just seeing what uh, already uh, a lot of the Latina women in, in that community were doing to safety plan around not only an abusive partner, but systems that were extremely abusive and violent towards them. So I think uh, as practitioners, as advocates, I think a big part of our role is to really connect with communities and with communities come up with solutions that are community driven and centered. I think sometimes when we are practitioners, uh, separated from the community itself, we, we may become disconnected and presume that we know what communities need. And I think that's a real danger as practitioners. Um, and you know, this anti-immigrant sentiment, I mean, none of this is new. We can just say now that this is overt and perhaps why it's really in our faces like day in and day out, but no, none of this is new. And many of our community members have fled extreme violence in their home countries. Um, there is a ton of uh, indigenous knowledge around genocide. They attempt to erase entire communities and people have survived that. So I think we have to go back to that. You know, our solutions, what can we do? I think our, our solutions need to be community centered and in partnership with those most impacted. I think otherwise, we're gonna be doing our own safety plan over there without really having much of an impact. Um, I'm glad you were touching upon that humility that we need to have as providers. I know that a lot of the people that, you know, have access to our content are mental health providers. Um, and, you know, there we know that there's some, some things that we're legally mandated to do. And we definitely need to take that approach of humility and understanding really what the big picture is to be able to use the resources that we that we have, um, and I think being part of the community and listening and um, having those relationships and networks is going to be really important to do this work, for sure. I'm over here hablando, la 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 la, no me escuchan. <laughs> Um, no, I was going to say, yeah, in terms of practitioners, right, increasing our understanding, right, like we, um, of especially the impact of mandatory reporting, right, there are, there's research, um, and we always talk about, there's research that shows how harmful that is, um, and then we always talk about um, contextualizing, right, what's happening. I think a lot of that is fear-based and fear-mongering from our practice, right, and then if we don't if we as practitioners um, aren't working, 
right? To really understand the nuances of how violence shows up and, and grounding ourselves, we can act in very reactionary ways that actually is harmful. Um, and especially when we're talking about people of color, we're talking about African-Americans and the intersections with the criminal justice system. We're talking, right? So that call, you're um, linking right, um, very problematic and harmful systems to potentially, you know, a survivor. I think one thing that helped me to like um, acknowledge the impact that this have is when I started working with um, Latinas impacted by criminal justice and the juvenile justice system specifically. And when Latinas are put in um, the juvenile justice system or start to have um, contact with um, child protective services, their risk of death significantly increases. So the, the rate, the possibility, the likelihood that they'll be dead by the time they're 24 increases just by their inter interaction with these systems. So there's something significant about our, our systems that quote unquote were developed to help, right? That are extremely harmful and problematic. And so that like is so important for us to be and you know, I think oftentimes practitioners were like, oh, we just do the individual work. We have to understand the, the impact of systems. We have to understand what they do and how they're traumatizing and the trajectories for which they put individuals on. Um, and maybe we'll be a little bit less inclined to, to pick up that phone and get them involved, right? Not to say, of course, we need to be involved, you know, when we have our situations, right? We've had those and we have to be a little bit more mindful um, and, and it's on us to do that work. It's on us to do that work. I think it's very hard, right? Because I think the, the situations that Ramandador is reporting imply a very black or white. Everything is, is it dangerous or is it not? It's the same thing as children exposed to violence. I've had arguments over the years with child protection workers and that have told me, are you advocating for not removing the children because you're saying that being exposed to violence is not harmful? And it's not yes or no. There is a, an in-between that I think is the complexity, is the, the gray area. And I think the challenge is that the systems are very not set up to deal with the nuance or the complexity. It's always, is, 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 is this good or not? The problem too is um, that then we rely on a system that its delivery is very, it falls really short. So it's another reliance on a system that doesn't deal with complexity as if they were very well equipped to deliver a trauma-informed response when it doesn't happen. So I think we're in this, um, it's like a, we're in this cycle of confusion. And I would say, I've, I'm trying not to come up with a very, very derogatory term for the, to describe this, but it's really not helpful. You're just in this caught up in this thing of relying on something that doesn't deliver, that causes more harm. Because over here, you have to say, oh yes, I have the smallest suspicion that something is happening. So the training is you report because we all have to err on the side of caution as if we had a system on the other side that will come and heal whatever is happening. And it's not. So that's where it's really intense you know, and confusing and harmful. And I'm glad that we're labeling this because then that requires us as providers, right, to tolerate our own stress and our own anxieties um, and be able to do work around that. Um, I think that one of the 
most helpful questions, you know, as I was going through my training was like, when you're thinking about reporting, think, is this something that I'm doing for myself? This is my own anxiety, or is this something that I'm doing? Because truly I am concerned for the safety of the person in front of me and safety, you know, as we're talking about means so many, a very complex photo of someone's life. So and you know, I, and I, yeah, I want to, I want to acknowledge how hard this is, right? Like I've had, you know, Gabby knows I've had sessions where I've gone into her office crying after because I'm so scared for my client, right? Because again, the intersections of all the things, immigration, right? Like, um, complete reliability on the partner, children in the, you know, all the things, right? And I have to soothe myself and calm. And I think where where my my mentor, Dr. Julia Padilla, who you mentioned earlier, Heidi, right? Like, you have to trust survivors. They don't, you know, we're talking about violence and control. Well, control has been taken away from them. And then as a practitioner, I'm going to say, oh, I don't trust you to be able to make the decisions to keep your kids safe when they've been keeping their kids safe this entire time, right? And they're using strategies to protect. And because of my own anxiety, I'm going to trump that, right? Like I need to be like, and I breathe and soothe and like, and I know, right, that these um, survivors have amazing mechanisms mm -hmm. for which they're um, pulling from, right? And and I think if we can allow that to come to fruition and support that, and it might not look like we said, you're leaving, right? How can we go automatically go to plan for you to leave, right? Because we know leaving increases rates of homicide, right? So you now are planning to leave and you're introducing the possibility of this turning into an intimate partner homicide um, seven times, right? So that's super problematic. And so we have to know as practitioners. And so then what does it look like that we provide support in other areas and this is where we listen and this is where julia always said does it need mean we provide support around employment right what are their goals what are other ways that they can start to feel empowered and then you'll see these shifts happening it's like yes like we we can look at them as a whole person not just the situation of domestic violence yes um it's an issue and they have so many other things that we can support them in, which will then lead to whatever whatever their end goal is, right? Wherever they want to go next. Um, so, yeah. Julia, I think probably the most influential thinker oh, of yeah. our times Oof. when it comes to this. And I think it was that because she pushed all of the notions around, you know, this paternalistic view that we know what survivors need, you know? And she always said, but what, what, what are the women saying? What, what are they asking? So they were asking, now work with our children, now work with our partners. And that was exactly what she did and how Caminar Latino was born and developed and evolved over time. I think Not at all, do, right? We need to do, I think we've talked about doing a show just on her. Yes. Right? I'm, tear, I'm tearing up. She's, <laughs> she was amazing and she, she, um, she, yeah, she, she shifted how the entire field was thinking about this. And she built a program. She helped build a program that was truly embedded in the, the community. And they have programs for children. They have programs, like truly had programs. We had, you know, the men downstairs doing their groups. And then we were upstairs either with the kids or the, you know, women, again, in a very heterosexual model, but 
it was what this community asked for and needed. And that change at the familial level, and then you saw the community change, right? Where they'd go out, we implemented a promotora model was like a, a community leader model where um, women themselves can provide support to their peers, right? So there are so many models and approaches for how this can look differently. Um, but mainstream, right? The big funding goes to <laughs> goes to these fear-based models that we are trying to, to shift, right? Um, and I think looking to not only survivors, but looking to community orgs that are doing this work, have been doing this work for 30, I mean, Caminar Latino has been around 30 something years now, right? And just have been doing it different from the beginning um, and how amazing that, and at this point they've impacted generations of folks, right? Um, have been able to disrupt the cycle of violence intergenerationally, which is amazing. So we'll we'll do a more of a, a podcast for them and lift them up and you know share more about what they do. Uh, but it is important for us to refocus. Yeah. Bueno, qué más? I think we had um, talked a little bit about what would be helpful you know in being supportive of survivors um in the different roles that we carry right in our comunidad is there anything that if you think somebody that maybe has never thought about this maybe somebody that has no exposure to this how can it be helpful to support a survivor yeah no that's a that's a great question and i i have to go back to julia because she thought of that you know the, the thing about Hasn't anyone thought of it? She thought of all of that. And I think it's, a, it's this approach around reaching for the wisdom that survivors have inherently have. And I think, so we know, right, that domestic violence destroys people's self-esteem, self-worth, and really um, takes away safety, but also agency. So I think what made um, Julia's approach so successful was that she gave that back. So not only the safety, but the agency around, okay, what, tell me what, what you need right now. And really tell me, even if it meant that I had to scratch whatever plan I had created. And I think that's where we, we get stuck sometimes because we are afraid of what we don't know. So if we say, let's do what survivors tell us to do, so it's the fear of, it's a lot of our decisions are fear-based in our, in our mainstream movement, right? It's all in the safe, the, in, on the safe, for the sake of safety. And I think it's ironic because we take away the agency, which is the experience that survivors were having in an abusive relationship. So I think that, what can you do? And that's, I know it's easier said than done. It happened to me last night with a friend from many, many years who is in an abusive situa situation. And it's been eight years of this, right? So I'm mm -hmm. talking to her and I'm like, okay, this is where I get to be in this space, supporting this person that I know I've known for many years who feels like can get out quite, just quite, you know, yet, or may not get out for another eight years, who knows, right? So, but that isn't the point. The point is to know that we're there for survivors, that they know they have options, that these options are all uh, presented in a very informed way, that we're not romanticizing systems that could be harmful, 
I think it's, it's about all of that. It's presenting people with a range of options. Yeah, and I would say validating, right? Validating their experience. You're right, it's really hard, especially when it's our familia, right? To, to, to tolerate our own anxiety and our own fear around what our familia and our, our, our um, friends might be going through, right? And so being able to just validate like that experience is so powerful. Just having someone that they can talk to that's not gonna be like, pues, why don't you, you know, why don't you call? And pues, you deserved it because you're not, you know, we, I hear so much about cutoffs happening I know of a friend that got cut off of her family completely because or it happened to my own mom got cut off from her family completely because she was in a domestic violence situation and they were like well you're on your own right you don't want to you don't want to change this you want to choose this man over your own children we're not and completely pulled support for my mom it was devastating you know we went my mom was raised middle class in in Bastrop Texas right got pulled, support got pulled from her. We grew up in poverty, right? I never knew the life that she had, taking piano lessons, cosas así. I was like, what the hell? Because of that cutoff from her being with my father who was a, a who used violence against her. And so I, we see that so much as a response, like that reaction. And we feel, it's very like, it's, it's very embedded in that like culture, um, right like I'm gonna punish you so that you get it gets so bad for you that you make change right as if that's like you know as if that's what's gonna help create change um versus I'm gonna love you and support you no matter what and I can I, I don't you know I might not be in your shoes but oh what can I do do I send you a meal can I just call you and check on you can I you know take your kids for a weekend so that you can actually like have a minute you know like things like that um to offer support just checking on your people just checking on your people it's also the questions that are asked are the wrong questions like if we start with por qué no lo deja right why doesn't she leave? That's usually the question. Why don't you leave? So that implies a level of, again, agency that the survivor may not have at that particular moment. So why not ask the question, why is their abusive partner doing what they're doing? I think that should be the question. And then involvement from community members, from family members with that person causing the harm. It's not the other way around because what my friend is experiencing right now is that she has family that doesn't support her. She doesn't have any networks, real networks available. People gave up because, you know, they're like, how much longer, you know, they gave up on her. And so what happens to survivors? They're alone, their credit histories are ruined. They lose their jobs and they're left with nothing. And then we expect them to, okay, your goals are, so let's come up with a plan, you know, for you to do. And we are expecting things that we wouldn't expect for ourselves. But we put these, you know, expectations on survivors at the most critical and vulnerable time. I think yeah. that's a great point of like shifting the language to like um, challenging that behavior from the perpetrator, right? Whoever that may be, like, where's the, the, the discussion around why do you choose to, you know, use violence this way? What is going on, right? And and offering healing. I think there's some, there's conversations around offering healing. And we've heard that from community members, like we need our own healing spaces so that we can break the cycle of violence for ourselves so that we're not doing it to our partners or our children, right? And we hear this and they're 
aren't many spaces specifically for Latino men to do their own work at unpacking, right, what they are handed down as well. Um, and so I think that's the piece of like where community members, if you're, um, you know, if you know your, your, your familia that makes these, you know, comments that you're like, whoa, is that, you know, is that cool, right? Like where we feel as a community more empowered to start challenging those norms within our family and our friends of the other side of it, of, of folks who are using violence, who are using emotional abuse, who are using, right, all these different strategies that we, you, you get that, you get that feeling, right, when you're around that dynamic and you're like, mm, I, don't, mm, 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 I don't feel right, I don't feel quite right, right, like, to say something and to start to, like, um, challenge the, this when it shows up in our face. Okay. Great job. So I know that we are right on time. Um, Heidi, thank you so much for joining us today, uh, for giving us a piece of your expertise and knowledge and um, telling us some ways in which um, we can challenge some of the systems and support survivors. Um, I don't know if Jessica and you have any questions or comments that you want to add. I just, Heidi, if you want to share a little bit about what y'all are doing for Domestic Violence Awareness Awareness Month, if there are things that we should, you know, who to follow, right, um, your, all your hashtags and social media handles and all of that stuff, um, so we can, we can be on the lookout. Yes, uh, so I wanted to promote our, our campaign, is that our one thing campaign, so what is the one thing that you're doing? to uh, observe Domestic Violence Awareness Month or to support survivors. And it's fun because people um, use their messages. So the one thing goes on social media on, on all platforms and um, people have been posting messages from around the world. Um, and it's really that is to think about what is the one thing you're doing, una cosa, está en español también, uh, to observe uh, Domestic Violence Awareness Month. I would also, uh, I would invite advocates and others doing the work to visit our Domestic Violence Awareness Project website. That is dvat.org because we have tons of resources there that can be um, just adopted and adapted. So they're there to be utilized. Um, campaign materials, awareness materials, um, and also access to the One Thing campaign. Uh, so please check those out. Um, those are, I would say, are the probably two big sources of, of great stuff for DVAM. Yay, thank you, Heidi. Thank you all for the invitation. <laughs>